I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Today's guest is Andreana Campbell. I don't know where to start in explaining how much I enjoyed having this conversation. It is the reason that I started the podcast is to be in a room sitting with somebody who is so smart and focused and driven on what they're doing and also creating an environment where others can expand on their own understanding of art history and their own practice that sort of gives me the chills thinking about it. Thank you, Andreana, for taking the time to sit with me and have the conversation. I'm recording the intro and I edited this episode from a hotel room in Hong Kong. I'm here for work. When I get back, I'm going to be moving from Los Angeles to the East Coast after almost uh, eight years in the city. Uh, I bought a home in Connecticut with a big old studio and I'm doing the artist thing and I'm moving to the country. But I will be in New York City every week. I love all of the individuals that I've worked with over the past eight years. I wanted to take time to thank everybody for the opportunities that have been provided and how welcoming and open everybody was right when I got to the city and led me to the place where I am today. It's all because of you guys. The podcast will not stop. It's actually going to continue on the East Coast. So without further ado, here's Andreana. Thank you for coming on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. So we're sitting in your apartment in Brooklyn. (laughs) Yes. I didn't tell you this walking in, but one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you is because you're sort of omnipresent. You're doing a lot of things all at once, and it's rare for me to see not just curators or art historians having their hands in so many different things at once, but artists as well. I want to know what drives you and sort of why you're doing the things that you're doing. But first, I I want to talk about where you're from. Well, you know, it's funny because um, I usually don't talk about that much about my background and where I'm from. Something that that I'm obviously very open about, but is not really I've never really thought about as much. But with what's going on with the immigration crisis right now, it's something that's been very dear to my heart. I was born in Jamaica. Um, My family moved here when I was eight years old. My dad, I got a scholarship to University of Connecticut to complete his master's. In what? Uh, Agriculture, which was the only exchange program that they had with the University of West Indies. And it wasn't what he was interested in. What was he interested in? Well, he was doing music but in Jamaica, but he was teaching as well. And ultimately, he ended up in insurance because we moved to Hartford. Wait, so he was a musician? He was. I mean, there's this amazing photo. That's how my parents met, actually, is that... And this is during the Ska days in Jamaica. My mom was on the way to a concert with her friend from UWE, University of West Indies. And they saw this car broken down, these two guys, and they decided to give them a ride because they look like nice guys. And <laughs> she was really into the tall guy, and my dad was the short guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's a little bit shorter than me, at like five feet six. And as it turns out, he was playing, he was opening for the, for the, at the concert that they were going to. There's thousands of people. There's actually a picture of him playing. And she said when she met him, he had an apartment full of records and lots of shoes and nothing else. That's <laughs> Yeah. What did he play? He played a guitar and he sang. I mean, he still does, but he obviously, he doesn't play, he stopped playing out a long time ago. But that, you know, that was one of his passions and he, I, he would try to teach me how to 
play and I'm, you know, I'm tone deaf. And music is impossible for me. So, do you remember him playing as you were a kid, though? Oh, like definitely. in the house? And like, oh, yeah. It's a part of your memories of home. Yeah. And so he was very um, supportive of the arts. My mom was a math teacher and she really grilled us in terms of like, like knowing bef- our fr- fractions. This is in Jamaica. In Jamaica. Yeah. And learning to read at an early age and, you know, always giving me lots of books. And, and my dad was very, was a teacher as well, so he was very smart. But my dad really encouraged drawing and painting and brought me notebooks and crayons and um, and so I always had a real interest in the arts and so and when I we came to the United States that continued throughout my childhood you know I started winning prizes for art competitions and there was never any doubt in my mind that I would go to an art school so I applied to Rodan School of Design, Art Institute Chicago and I got to be both, an artist. To be an artist. And I got into both and, you know, went off to art school. So wait, where did you move to? Did I miss this? Did it, where did you move to when you came to the States? First, we lived in Hartford for a year. And then my parents bought a house in Windsor, Connecticut, where they still live in yeah. the suburbs. So it's your, it's your home you grew up in? Yeah, so I grew up in, just like, you know, it's like a regular suburban town. It was pretty uh, boring. <laughs> we used to joke that we'd make our own fun. So we'd either, like go to diners and have coffee and, you know, Do you have siblings? Stores. There are five of us, yeah. Oh, holy moly. Yeah, there are a lot of us. Yeah. Where do you fit in the range? I am the oldest. You're the oldest? Yeah. So did you play that role of being the oldest and sort of helping the no, ones? you know, my, my, my second sister in the line of us did that. And part of the reason for that was is that I went off to boarding school. So I ended up getting um, a scholarship to Miss Porter School which is a prestigious girls' boarding school in Farmington, Connecticut. And it's best known for where Jackie O went. You know, a lot of these daughters of these Skyon families went, especially in the heyday of that. So why did you do that? What was the... I was in a special program. So right before we moved, I was in a special program. I was a real dork as a kid, right? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) So (laughs) that's not fair. I was in a program where in middle school I studied philosophy, Algebra, geometry, Latin, and... Oh. Yeah. You were super dorky. I was a super <laughs> dork. I would, on weekends, I would, like, take out my Latin book and wanted to, like, find out what happened to, like, Quintius, you know. That's pretty amazing. How old were you? I mean, it's just, I was, like, what, 12? Early teens, 13. like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I was doing for fun. So I took this exam, and I my Latin scores were really high, which even later I got one of the, I got I was in top one percent in the country. Really? And got yeah, and so Skidmore offered me a full ride to study classics. Eventually, you know, when I was applying to schools, and my parents were like, "Do that, don't go to art school." But and I still have a real I have an, a real affection for the classics. Were your parents um, very practical about that? At least your mom. You know, they weren't as practical. You know, I'm friends with other friends who also have immigrant parents, and I'm also an immigrant, but uh, who were put a lot of pressure on them to yeah. go to business school. To, you know, my cousins did that. My cousins went to law school. Yeah. They became accountants, you know, account managers, PR people. Um, my parents were encouraging in that direction, but also wanted me to be happy and knew that I had this passion for art and, and thought... You know, even though they had no idea what kind of jobs you could get in the arts, um, they thought maybe I would figure it out. My family, similarly, you can see something at the end that you know is success, so you want somebody to reach for that thing. But the unattainable are the things you don't know about, like the arts. My parents didn't really understand how I could be successful. I think my mom, like going through, even as a, a kid in high school, she was trying to do things like tell me I should be drawing comics for a newspaper. 
because she could see that as a tangible way for me to make money. And she was very practical. Yeah. But they have always supported me. They just didn't know how I was going to make any money along the Doing way. Doing it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they still don't. Yeah, well, I don't think, I mean, but the funny thing is, is that I don't, I mean, I think no one's parents really do. I mean, my friend, uh, Rob, uh, Rob, the artist Bud Johnson, teaches a class called Professional Practices at RISD, and it's all just teaching these students what they're going to do when they get out, because we never had those courses. We had no idea what we are going to do. I mean, how do you get from A to B? You know, there's no... One of the things I talk about often on the, on the podcast with other artists is the idea of many of us having other jobs. Yeah. You have to have a supplemental income to actually be able to create sometimes, unless you come from a family that allows you not to have that, mm-hmm. that need. And up, up until a certain point, at least in my career, or dealing with, with other artists, it's always been like you didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Because if you talk about the idea that you are not successful enough to have just an art career, then people look down upon it. Or it was the assumption, right? Yeah. So it was always an interesting thing to sort of, now it's okay mm-hmm. to be successful in something else and still be successful in the arts at the same time. Definitely. I went to your website, of course. <laughs> Which is horribly out of date. Is it? I think by two years. I haven't. There's a lot of new projects and books and things I need to add. But well, one of the things, and I'm I'm just going to go through a list of artists that you've written on. Okay. And this is on your site, so it's readily available. But I think it will give sort of a spectrum of not only the people you've written about, but the different types of art. So Robert Rauschenberg, Nari Ward, Frank Stella, Ralph Lemon, Andrea Geyer, Ruth Root, Jack Whitten, Nick Cave, Stanley Whitney, Glenn Ligon. Sharon Nassat, Laurie Simmons, Barbara Caston. It's just a few. Yes, and there are a lot more women, too. Yeah, there are. And yeah. so when I was actually going through this list, and I'm very conscious of this, even during the podcast, is the amount of women versus men on that list was 50-50. Yeah, yeah. So when you're, I guess that's a good place to start on this. When you're thinking about what you want to write about and taking assignments from Art Forum or or even what you want to do for writing for catalogs, are you thinking about, are you consciously thinking about the number of people of color, the number of women versus men, how does that come into play? You know, it's, it's interesting because when I'm curating, those are things that I'm actively thinking about. I mean, I'll put together a list and I'll think, well, how balanced is this list in terms of, because I think inevitably, and I, have, I see this and when I talk to many of my colleagues, you know, our lists tend to skew towards being heavily male and heavily, you know, straight white men. And well, which, is not, which is, which, you know, there are a lot of talented artists and, you know, who fit into that category. But there are also so many other artists that um, you could make up lists, you know, you can make up so many different kinds of lists. And so I'm very much aware of it when I'm curating. Funny enough, with the writing, that's really been very organic. My first... So let me tell you the first time I ever wrote a uh, review, and maybe we'll start there. How long ago was this? This was back, you can check the date, I think it's 2012. Yeah. I met Lauren O'Neill Butler at a party, a birthday party, and we had an interesting conversation, and she's an editor at Artform, and she said, well, let me know if you ever want to write reviews for us. And What were you doing at the time? I was a grad student, so I'm getting a doctorate in art history. Right. Um, But at that time, I just started out as a grad student. And I didn't know anything about uh, writing for publication, and I was really uh, scared to do so. I didn't know this, but usually they, they put you through this whole ring roll to get these writing gigs. So sometimes you have to write for other places, and then, you know. But I guess based on our conversation, she thought I'd be a good fit. And I then sat on that invitation for three years. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my and, God. Yeah. And I was just, I was frightened at the idea of putting something in the world. I was frightened of my own ability as a writer and I didn't think I could do it. And we were talking about another guest of yours, Ethan Greenbaum, who's a close friend who actually really pushed me to get my writing into the world. And it was a really, um, really important uh, moment in my career. So I went, I called Lauren up and said, do you want to have coffee? Three and years we, later. Three years later. Yeah. I hadn't seen her since. <laughs> and we went to the Ace Hotel and we had this really awkward coffee conversation. And at the end of it, she's just kind of like, well, and I said, do you still want me to write for the magazine? And she said, yeah, why didn't you just say so from the very beginning? Why are you being so awkward? Because <laughs> I just thought she's going to think I'm a total like, I don't know, idiot for sitting on this. So I was looking around for things to write about. And I thought I would start with what I knew, which is Norman Lewis. And so there was a big exhibition at the Brooklyn well, Museum. You know Norman Lewis because that's what your PhD subject is. Subject exactly. Is, yeah. And so I just finished coursework. I just graduated to having a master's in art history. I felt more confident. Um, and so I went to the Brooklyn Museum show that they had on protest, and they had this amazing Lewis. And I knew a lot of the artists that were in the show, from Melvin Everts to, to Hammonds. To, and I knew I could just write this piece based on you know everything I knew. And it would be very kind of coming yeah. from the heart and on the mind very easily. So I wrote it and they liked it. And then they said, well, do you want to write two reviews a month? And so I started just kind of going to shows. It was a lot because you have to see a lot of art. To, to find ones that you actually want to write about? It's find ones you want to write yeah. about. Find ones that you think that other people won't write about. So the writing and going in a direction towards having a diversity of voices and artists that I represent in terms of the kind of review history, I felt that it developed organically. But I guess in some ways, you know, part of my project that I've been working on with Norman Lewis is kind of thinking about someone like Lewis who has, who has been excluded from the canon, but had a critical reception history. So when I went back and I would look for reviews of his work, I would find them in Art News, in well, the he New was York part, Times. He, he was one of the main ABEX at that time. Exactly. But he, then he was never written about in the 70s. Like Irving Sandler, you know, God bless him, he passed away, didn't include him in the Triumph of American Painting. Is that right? Yeah. Do you, okay, obviously. Is that because he's black? I mean, so, or is that... Yeah, you know, I think it's weird because I've spent time with Irving and he's a, he was a super nice guy. But there was a way in which, I mean, he got up at a symposium and said, well, there are only five great abstract expressionist painters and they're all men. And so there was a way in which certain people of that generation didn't see, there was no way that a black artist or even a woman artist, not someone like Frankenthaler or Krasner, could create art on the same level as someone like Jackson Pollock or, or Franz Klein or, you know. There, there are so many different kinds of racism. There's things that are more explicit. There are people who won't have tea with you or have been spat at in different countries. Or, but then there are things that are kind of like um, the social, there's a weird socialization where there's conversations about quality that um, where people come up with this idea that quality comes from a certain kind of gesture or a certain kind of mark making, a certain kind of size in terms of p making paintings, a certain stature in terms that of personality. That a person of color wouldn't be able to make? Yes, or, or a woman, say. Or a woman, yeah. And so a lot of the reviews about, say, Lewis's work or some of the women was that it was calligraphic, it was feminine, the lines were delicate, the color choices were aberrant. You know, like there's a whole coding that is not explicit 
racism, but it's it, it kind of implies something of a less, lesser quality. Well, I was I noticed this the other I was at the the PMA in Philadelphia the other day, mm-hmm. and I, I have been noticing this more. I will post images. We were talking earlier about social media, and I want to get into that a little bit. But this is more in terms of what we're talking about now. I find things that oh oh my god this piece is amazing and this piece is amazing. Every piece that I'm taking a photo of is a is a male. Mm-hmm. Because these collections don't focus on women being in the context of of that conversation. Yeah, they're excluded from what the permanent collections and a lot of these major institutions are using as a descriptor of what ha- was happening at that time period. Yeah, so that's one of the amazing things. So when I was starting out writing, that's one of the things I found. You know, thinking about how important it was for so many of these artists of color and women to have a critical reception history so that people who were going back and doing work like I was doing had something to draw from. But also I started thinking about what Norman Lewis himself said, which when he was talking about the work, he was talking about what was, you know, what was something that we wouldn't know about the 50s. And he said, well, there's complete absence of women. You know, now you think about maybe two or maybe four women or five women I can, you know, think of that are associated with abstract expressionism. He said there were so many more, and those people are kind of been lost to history. So I think that, you know, there were always, obviously, maybe, you know, fewer women uh, participating, but there was a substantial amount of them. And then it comes down to what happens in the ne- kind of next phase when people get, when people become part of a, a canonical art history or are also then collected, like there's a sense of value and how that's um, associated with who ends up in certain collections, like what you're talking about. Well, because collections influence what's in, well, oh, those I, collections I, get donated to institutions. Yeah, so then... we're talking about private collections being donated into institutional, mm-hmm. and these people sit on the boards of these institutions as well, too. Exactly. And there's an impetus to actually increase the value of your own collection by giving to an institution as well. Yeah, the and, value, and, and also, you know, you're, you have your name kind of uh, cemented in a place in history. Yeah, so yeah. when you're looking, mm-hmm. I guess we go back, so when you're yeah. looking at what you choose to write about, yeah, you're choosing to write about things that interest you, obviously. First, first and foremost, I mean, I, I tend, sometimes people say, and I'm a real formalist, I tend to be gravitated to things I like to look at. That's who I am. Yeah, like, so first I, and foremost, that's, you know, what... Um, is really important for me. I'll just walk into a show and I think, wow, this is amazing. And I usually start writing in the gallery. If, if something starts clicking in my mind in the, in the gallery space, I'll just, you know, take some notes on my phone and I could probably write, you know, a rough draft of that, sh- like that review in like 10 minutes. Or is that right? Like that. Yeah. And then, and then I would purse it out when that. you get back into... Exactly. So, I mean, that's always the test for me if it's something that really um, immediately affects me. Um, sometimes things are a slow burn, but in general, there's a way in which I just enter a space and I, you know, I know exactly what I want to say. And that's the same thing for the long form writing as well. I start writing in my head, usually when I'm walking, and I'll take notes. As you're phone. walking? As, uh, yeah, as I'm walking on my phone, and then that becomes the structure of something. You mentioned something that I thought was interesting, and I associate with this, this idea mm-hmm. of formalism. Yeah. Are seeing things through formalism yeah. and being that person who walks in and that's the immediate reaction you have. Mm-hmm. I'm very much that way. That's how yeah. I create my work. But it's also how if I go into a studio visit, that's the first thing I'm talking about. And for me, it took me a long time to understand that I didn't have to be the guy going to the Whitney ISP and having that other conversation. Yeah. But formalist conversation was always sort of a dirty 
Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, did, do you? How do you feel about that? Or did you, <laughs> I mean, because well, obviously I, I'm not a strict. I mean, I, I mean, you know, because I do. But, I do uh, think that you know theory is important. Of course do you do. Obviously, that, you write. Uh, you write about this. Yes, but I, but I, I think there is something to learning the language, talking about what you're looking at, because for me, a, a lot of what we do is is looking at its perception and. And I and so I do think that I spend a lot of time thinking about language and thinking about ways that I can have the language approach the art object or you know installation or performance. So this sort of gets us into we were before we started we talked a little bit and I was talking about Norman Lewis, but I was saying that everything that I was seeing describing Norman Lewis online, mm-hmm. like this is a good Artnet had had a descriptor of him, and it was. Uh, incisive depictions of contemporary society and poetic abstractions. And I thought to myself, that is the biggest art speak line I've yeah. ever heard, but it yeah. doesn't describe why he was relevant and why he was important to that ABEX movement. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me why? Like, what, <laughs> like in basic terms? Well, like, you know, this is... Um, he yeah. was dealing with more social issues at that no, time as well, not, too, no? Not, uh, not initially. So Lewis is someone that is notable... I think for many art historians who first reintroduced him to the canon, like someone like Anne Eden Gibson, who did when a lot was of, this? Uh, in the 80s and early 90s, uh, wrote about Lewis. We say Lewis died in 70, what, 79, so yeah. quite a while ago. He did. He died quite a while ago. So, uh, so he had this kind of, there was a big period where the work was completely f- uh, forgotten. And Kelly Jones actually did an exhibition of the black paintings that, you know, she knew him. And she did an exhibition that was very important. And then Gibson, who was a professor both at Yale and then later at Delaware, is the one that brings him back into the public conversation and did a series of exhibitions. And when she, I talked, I spent a lot of time with her, which is really great. I went out to Park City, Utah, and just spent time looking in our archives, and we would just joke about what findings that we both had. But she said she started thinking about Lewis because she saw a photograph that's online, it's at the Artist Sessions talk. And the people around the table are, you know, everyone from Motherwell to Alfred Barr, who's the, uh, you know, director at MoMA, and Lewis, you know. So you have all of these estimable abstract expressionist painters and sculptors, Ad Reinhardt and Norman Lewis, and they're all involved in conversations. And she said, what is this black man doing at this table, and how do I not know who he is? Yeah, you're you looking know? at the list of names of, like, from left to right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so she, that started her down a, a road trying to figure out who this man was and, and later found out that he had known a lot of these artists in the 30s even. You know, he was going to lunch with David Smith and Dorothy Daner and having conversations about the meaning of art all the way back then. You know, people tended to position him as kind of, you know, someone who was, came later, but he was actually part of the initial conversations about what uh, abstraction was in the post-war period. And his work was being shown at the Museum of Modern Art, it was being shown at the Whitney Museum, it was being shown at the Venice Biennale. So he really had this very international career and then, you know, gets completely kind of forgotten uh, for a long period of time. There, was, there were institutions that kept his memory alive, the Studio Museum being one of them because he was a founder of the Studio Museum. Oh, is that right? Harlem. Yeah. And he, you know, he did a lot for the, he founded a gallery called the Cinca Gallery, so he did a lot of community work. But one of the things that happens is that his early work is about protest, 
And his later work, say after 1960s, about protest work, you know, the black paintings. Well, he did the, uh, the Spiral Group as well, too, right? The Spiral Group, exactly. That's in the 60s. But the middle period, when he's really spending a lot of time in these abstract expressionist circles, he was doing work that was about kind of abstraction. And for him, the abstraction needed to be separate from the social justice work that he was doing. So he's still protesting. But for him, the, those paintings were not about any kind of activism. Yeah. They were about things like movement and light and color yeah. because he was in kind of involved in these other uh, conversations. I, I did find a quote from him that I thought was really interesting that sort of speaks to that too. Mm -hmm. He said, and you tell me if this is actually him, mm -hmm. I wanted to be above criticism so that my work didn't have to be discussed in terms of the fact that I'm black. Yeah, so there's a lot of, there are a lot of statements like that. His Guggenheim application, where he talk, he talks about that. He wants to get away. He wants to be an artist. He, he doesn't want to be, want to be seen a black as artist. artist. As first, and and this is a big deal because in the period you have so many artists. Um, you know, he came up in Harlem. He wasn't really friends with Jacob Lawrence, but they knew each other. They came up at the same time, and and Lewis had gotten a fair amount of accolades, and this is in the press. You know, you know, Lawrence is the one that ends up with the MoMA show, that ends up being in the Phillips collection. And I think that Norman always felt that because Jacob Lawrence depicted the black body, he was able to have a career because his blackness was represented in his art. Yeah. And even Bearden, who had started out making abstractions, eventually moved towards depicting black bodies and communities. And that in communities, yeah. And community, yeah. And that art becomes very uh, popular as well, and he's able to have a career. So there's always pressure on Norman to do that and it was something that he always kind of pushed back against because he wanted the work to uh, stand on its own and he wanted to be seen as an artist I can even see that with, you know other artists of I, I can see that pressure today maybe. on artists as well like yeah. if you are an artist uh, or, or, or an artist of color your art should be about activism now because of what's happening in our, our current society. Well, you know, part of, when I started working on, on Norman Lewis, um, in, I was approached by Ruth Fine, who is a curator at the National Gallery of Art, and she, I had recently retired, and she wanted to work on a big Norman Lewis exhibition, and so I was a lead researcher for that exhibition. I was at the National Gallery of Art when Ruth was there. Oh, and nice. And the Romer Bearden show was actually at the National yeah. Gallery. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. she's fantastic. She knew everyone. She was able to get work from private collections that we would never have gotten. Everyone told us we weren't going to find enough paintings. We found over 500 paintings, is thousands right? of drawings. Yeah. And also, one of the things that I ended up doing is that the International Review of African American Art asked me if I would edit a special edition. So I ended up co-editing it with Jacqueline Francis. But we talked to people like Mark Bradford, who said, you know, when he was a student, he learned about Norman Lewis through Charles Gaines. And he started researching him. There's nothing really written about him. But he was able to find some old catalogs. And it was really important for him because he was someone who was doing abstract painting as a black man, yeah. but not representing a black body. Yeah. Um, Rashid Johnson said the same thing. Even though he was using bodies in his work, he also went out to uh, New Jersey to see Taryn, who is Lewis's daughter, to talk to her and see the work because he was someone that he saw as being a precursor to his practice. So, you know, there's always this kind of like maybe, you know, not completely underground, but there are always artists who were kind of looking to him um, as someone who could structure a kind of career, you know, as a kind of model yeah. of success. And this is something I talked to Jack Witten about, actually, that I have an interview with Jack that I did. It was a series of three interviews that's coming out in a collection. It's about Norman. Is it in writing or what is it? The interviews were actually done uh, verbally. 
and uh, you know now it's going to be in writing. It's transcribed. Um, it's transcribed, and it's going to be um, in a collection that um, Hauser is putting out um, for Jack Witten. Witten. But it's Jack Witten talking about Norman Lewis. Oh, interesting. And he really admired him, and he was a role model for him throughout his uh, career. Um, there's another book I'm working on with the Tate, a compendium where the Tate actually bought a painting called Norman Lewis's Cathedral from 1950. When did they buy it? They bought it two years ago. Oh, so recently. A few years ago. Was it in a private a collection ago. or something, or what? So this is really crazy. This painting called Cathedral was shown in the 1956 Venice Biennale. It was the first time an African-American artist had shown in Venice. Um, it was shown at the same time is as Jacob right? Lawrence had shown the chess players. So they were the two first African-American artists to ever show. I'm really sad that this painting left the country. It came up for auction at Swans. And the Tate bought it, which is fantastic. They restored it, and they. But came it was to in me. a private collection then. Well, they came to me and asked me to, to to put together a compendium about it. One of the things about this painting is that I'd been looking for it for a long time. Ruth and I tried to find it for a Norman Lewis show because it was so important, but it actually had been completely lost for a number of years. A private collector had bought it, and it ended up in storage. Um, the rumor was that it was in a barn in Vermont. So this uh, Nigel Freeman at Swans, who you know is one of the people that started the African American auction, actually had been searching for it for years, and finally got a call from someone as after our show, as Lewis's name became more well known, um, that they they had this painting. This you is know? crazy. Yeah, so he drove up there in a snowstorm and he got this painting. And did he take it when he went up there? Yeah, he took it. He was like, I'm not letting yeah. it out of my sight again. Yeah, he took it. <laughs> came back and the Tate bought it and of course you know it's, it's now it's, a, it's a beautiful painting and I commissioned two writers to write about the work's reception in Europe one from Italian perspective because it actually was reproduced uh, often in the Italian press when it was shown and no one had really done that history yet and I don't read Italian so I thought this is a great way yeah. to bring other people in how did you and find then, the writer for that um, Raphael Bavita, he is at Cooper Union, but I also know that he'd written about post-war abstraction. Um, he's at CUNY, where I'm in school. Yeah. And Claire Brandon was someone who had written about the Venice Biennale, and I knew her dissertation was about that, and she's yeah. based in Europe as well. So I thought they would be perfect, and they were. Um, and so I wrote an essay for that. So that's something that's coming out this year, as compendium on Cathedral, which I think will be where are you a great find, resource. Where, where can we find that later? Like, um, what is... I think it will be, you can access it either Tate Online, yeah. All of this information, I think I wrote you once, you were talking about something, I was like, where do I get more information on this? And you go, I'm writing about that right now. Yeah. And I was like, how do I get it? And you're like, you can't have it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, and I was thinking, I was thinking like, son of a bitch. Well, there goes. I was like, and that conversation ended. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, it's, so, it's really hard. <laughs> I, did the, I did the exact same thing the other day. Another art historian was writing something. They were like, well, this piece of writing is absolutely inaccurate. And I yeah. was like, well, where should we find the right stuff? Yeah. Well, the thing I'm writing right now is like, can I get the thing you're writing? No, no, that's no. not out yet. No, it's not <laughs> out yet. Yeah, I know. You have to, you really have to watch it. You know, my, yeah, my advisor is David Jocelyn. He's always been um, very supportive of me keeping the research intact and putting it out all together as opposed to putting it out. Is that, okay, so talk to me about that. Is that what the intent that, well, obviously you want to make sure that everything you're putting together is correct. Oh yes, of course, but also you want to make sure there's enough material for a book. So if you put out all the information beforehand, you won't have anything. You won't be able to compile it for the thing later yeah, on that I is the more Exactly, complete. more rigorous and complete, yeah. We were briefly trying to think of all the different things we could speak about here, but 
Apricata is mm -hmm. the journal that you work on mm -hmm. with uh, Joanna. Mm -hmm. Fiducia, yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about how that came to light and what it is. It seems like you probably don't need another thing on your plate, but this is something that sounds very near and dear to you. Um, Apricata is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, Joanna and I have been friends for a long time. She used to live up the street in Greenpoint, and we were both graduate students, kind of, you know, and art writers. And we actually met in... We were in North Carolina. I put together a panel, and she was one of the presenters. And we and I at the Nasher or where? It was at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. Oh wow! Um, it was CCAC, and yeah, I did a panel, and she was one of the best presenters. And I thought she's brilliant. We had so much fun. We went she's driving really around smart. the city, met up with this other woman, Ellen Tanny. Anyway, when we came back here, we said, "Oh, we live in the same neighborhood. Let's start hanging out all the time." And one of the things we went to CAA together, the College Art Association meeting, and she said, "Hey, Shauna Lucker has this. Lucker has this show up, the Hirsch one. Let's go walk through the show." And so we went together, and Shauna gave us this um, walkthrough, and the show was all about surrealist fistfights. And we were w walking around, and I thought, you know, I'm going to write about this show. So I contacted Brian Drokauer at Art in America, and I wrote a review. And one of the things I was really interested in in the review was that Shauna had all these kind of really masculine themes, but she'd broken it up with this color, this Benjamin Moore color called apricotta, yeah. which is kind of peachy and feminine. And I was like, well, is this a historically surrealist color? And she said, no, I just thought that it was just too much fist fighting and too much machismo. And, and both Joanna and I said, I love that word. We should start a journal. And so then we came back to the city. I had a meeting with Libby Pratt where we just had dinner. And she said, well, you know, I run this publishing house, Secretary Press, and we're looking to publish something. I don't know what we're going to publish next. And I said, well, Joanna and I have a great idea for a journal <laughs> called Apricotta. <laughs> And the idea was that it would be kind of everything, it would be revolutionary in a feminine way, perhaps, or even a queer way, or be identities on a spectrum rather than being, you know, about things that are more rigid. And we wanted to have something playful and poetic, and, and that's been the result. It's been a real um, labor of love. And it's fantastic because, you know, I went to Yale last week for a few meetings, and you know, people were asking me about apricot. It's like a real thing. You know, we came up with this idea walking around the Hirshhorn, and now, you know, after a few years, it's a real publication that people are reading from here to all the way to California at Stanford. It's in the Smithsonian collection. Is it really? Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but now we're working on issue two, which is about cults, so, communes, and collectives, and so Joanna and I are kind of, it's biannual. So it's going to be biannual. Yes, biannual, which is as much as I think both of us can do with all of our other projects. So what struck me about, okay, so first, Shauna yeah. Luchter, you can listen to her interview that I had with her about Surrealist Fistfights earlier on in the episodes of The, the Scene is Forgetting. She's amazing. She's a She's great amazing, artist. She's amazing, yeah. And she is in the Apricot Journal. In the center of it, she has a portfolio. Yeah, of her research items, yeah. Right. Reading it, I picked it up the other day while I was here in New York and reading through the beginning of it, the first article was really, it, it sets the tone for the rest of the piece. Do you want to talk a bit about that piece? The uh, Matthew Abrams yeah. piece, yeah. So Matthew was a graduate student at Yale when he wrote that piece, and he subsequently finished. He's a great art writer. And basically, the first article is about Rockwell Kent in Greenland, and it's about this idea of how someone like Kent could go to Greenland and have multiple partners and be seen as kind of this adventurer 
Whereas someone like Lenny Riefenstahl, who was also there and who, you know, was referred to as like a human mattress. And he, was, he, he would say that she was kind of slut shamed yeah. for being a woman and being uh, sexually adventurous. And so, yeah, I think that article, we started with that was a really beautiful, strong piece of writing, but also because it, it sets up a kind of a way that we want to rethink certain narratives um, around cultural producers or, you know, uh, artists. And I think that Matthew did a great job of, of doing that. It's that excellent. Piece. And it's a, yeah. it's the type of read that keeps, it feels like a novel to me. It feels... Yeah, well, that's the other thing that's very important about Apricotta and something that I joke about with my advisor is that if you read October, there is a specific way that things are written in that kind of academic language. And for us, we wanted Apricotta to have a, a hint of the literary, well, to have approachable. a, a approachability, to have a narrative quality, um, because we want an audience that's both, you know, of course, very smart and, and probably academic in some ways, <laughs> but um, also people that want to, you know, you want to pick it up, you want to read it, um, you want a lot of short form, things that are engaging and could really, um, you could pick up and read and, and get something out of. Let's talk Rauschenberg. Oh, yeah. So... I was a fellow at Stanford, and I was out in California for almost a year. So it was a lot of back and forth, but were you really? Of, I didn't know this. Yeah, and I was writing my dissertation, and I got a call from Emily Liebert um, at MoMA, and she said, "You know, you know, Leah and I are working on a big Rauschenberg show, and we would love to have you contribute to the show. What do you think?" And I actually spoke to my advisor, and I spoke to another professor who I'm friends with, and they said, "Don't do it." Why? Well, because you know I've had so many side projects, and when you're trying to write a dissertation, it's best to not take on too much. And I that decided doesn't... to do it <laughs> <laughs> because one of the reasons I decided to do it is because when I actually moved here as a kid from Jamaica, I you know when one of these art classes, I won ten free tickets to the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and I had this favorite painting by Rauschenberg that I would visit every weekend called Retroactive Number One. And it really made me want to be an art historian Where and was an it? artist. It was at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. Gotcha. And so Rauschenberg was very, very important to me as first as a young artist and later as an art historian. I didn't really think I could write about him because, you know, there's so many people that have from Krauss to Brandon Joseph that have done um, exemplary jobs. But for something like this, I thought I'd love to be part of that history. And so... I ended up writing that article for the catalog, which is great. I think I was one of the only um, graduate students in that in the mix of, of really exemplary scholars. But then I also wrote a piece for Freeze at the same time. Freeze contacted me and said, hey, do you want to go down to Captiva to the residency and interview people and kind of write about... The artists that are at the residency or who? Are the no, people working we went, at the space? We went down, I went down with David White, who was Rauschenberg's longtime curator, Leah Akim, who had worked on the show in London, and Charles Atlas, who was designing the sound for MoMA. And part of the what I wrote was about Rush, the legacy of Rauschenberg, really. So I ended up interviewing Bryce Martin and um, Stanley Whitney, who used like to Like artists hang affected out. by Rauschenberg? Artists who knew him. Yeah. You know, so Martin had been a studio assistant. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, who had worked for him for a long time. And Rauschenberg would go to his studio and trade work with him, some of which work he still has. He wow. bought, he would buy works from the studio to support him. 
and he worked for him for a very long time. Stanley used to go over there and do some art handling for them. And, you know, and he said, Rauschenberg would say, come in, you know, and yeah. he would send people to his studio. And this is as a young black artist in the 70s. He said it was so crazy because people would be, wouldn't know he was black and would show up and be like, well, yeah, Robert Rauschenberg sent me over. Yeah. Or he would, you know, be hanging out when Cy Twombly would come over or Jane Fonda. And he said it was an amazing opportunity to see this kind of... The access um, to... To that information the access to that information the access to someone who had had such a long career yeah. as an artist and to see someone who was so generous in terms of giving in terms of funding for other artists emergency yeah. grants in terms of knowledge in terms of sharing you know t you know bringing you into kind of fold yeah it's rare it's really rare and i so throughout the course of working on rauschenberg i just I really developed an admiration for him, both as an artist, in terms of the things that he developed. You know, as Lee Dickerman says, like you walk around Chelsea and all of these innovations that we see, you know, the idea of the fact that art could operate between, you know, between art and life, you know, like the art object, the fact that you could t be taking things and assembling them, the, the flatbed picture plane, you know, yeah. silk screening, mixing media. All of this comes out of some well, of the, the transfer, transformation of what uh, silk screening and the size and the scale of what those exactly. things. Exactly, silk screening. He, he did all of this. Yeah, yeah, sound pieces. Yeah. working with science, with the performance pieces. Working with dance. Working with dance. Cunningham and everything. All of these things mixed together, like they all come from this one individual. Exactly, and so he was so influential in so many different ways. And, and then I also found out he was a great person, and that was just really, it was really touching. It was really um, an important moment for me in my career as a scholar because I think about that nine-year-old child kind of looking at those paintings and you know you never knew you never know who your heroes are and it was just kind of a nice coming together coalescing of a kind of a, um, a long period of getting to a place where I could uh, write about someone like that yeah. who I'd really looked up to as a yeah. child. Also earlier on I did an interview with Emily about the Rauschenberg show. Oh great. On the podcast as yeah. well too. And I got into some of the nitty-gritty stuff because Rauschenberg was a big influence on me. I think as a kid growing up in Iowa, it was one of those things that was accessible. Yeah. Right? And some of the conversations about Rauschenberg early on, too, the reasons he picked up these items is because that was what he had available to actually make from at the time. And for me, it took a very long time to understand that instead of being, uh, I was a portrait painter when I went to grad school because I thought that's what art was. I didn't realize, and Rauschenberg was one of those people that made me realize that you could do these other things and have accessibility through through something other than uh, representational uh, painting. I was having a I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about this idea of meeting sort of your heroes mm -hmm. or understanding who they are and having some of them disappoint. Yeah. And then having other ones really be amazing and mm -hmm. completely change your perspective on who they are. Mm -hmm. So I guess this brings me into somebody that I find incredibly enlightening and just sort of an amazing person who was also, who I interviewed was B. Wirtz. Mm -hmm. But somebody that you have a connection with and the reason I got to know B was this bomb article back from 2012, uh, June of 2012 I think is the issue, that still sits on my desk between B. Wirtz and John Newman. Mm -hmm. And I brought, I brought this up on the show, what an influence it was on me, but you're friends with John. I'm a fan of the work, so tell me a bit about John Newman's work and why it's important. Well, this goes back to kind of these early days in grad school. So before I started writing for Art Forum, I was just I was a grad student and I was finishing up coursework and I was really frustrated at not having a kind of creative venue for my thoughts. 
Um, and I ha- wasn't ready to write yet. But my friend Daniel Palmer and I, who's now a uh, curator of the Public Art Fund, decided this, neither one of us had curated. I mean, I worked for Forbes doing small curatorial projects. So how did projects. you know Daniel? We were in the same graduate program together. Just so, studying together. Studying together. We studied for our German exams together. And we came up with this idea to do this exhibition. And it was looking at the 1913 Armory Show. And it was in 2013, so it was the 100-year anniversary. We were going to do it, and we did it, at the Abrams Art Center, which the space was actually built with funds raised by Marcel Duchamp um, and Milton Wolf Brown at the 1963 anniversary of the 1913 Armory Show. Wow. And so the space had this kind of historical significance. They wanted to do something. They knew that we were historians or historians and that we could do something. And so we started thinking about what that would look like. And we wanted to think about this kind of 100-year trajectory of abstraction. And we started looking at what was going on with a lot of photographic abstraction, like in the works of Ethan Greenbaum, and also things that you know were kind of sculptural abstractions. And so we started doing all these studio visits, and it was an amazing exhibition. You know, we got an art form review, and we got reviews in El Pais and Canadian art. And I mean, for this little show, right? That and your first. Yeah, our first show. Yeah, we it was really um, got a lot of acclaim, and you know, really, really meant a lot. But one of the artists we visited was John Newman, and we went to his studio. He's in a loft, and you know, we were looking at his art, and he'd just gone through a, a, a breakup. And I think for that reason, he was interested in having a dialogue with younger, you know, people. Yeah. And so we just started hanging out, you know, because he wasn't in his, in, in his traditional circles, you know, like yeah. where he had been previously and still does hang out with, you know, with B or with, you know, his best friends of Laurie Simmons and Carol Dunham or um, Bob Moskowitz or Mel Bachner or, yeah. you know, you can just keep naming the list He's of, of people. He's of a generation, He's though. of that generation and, you know, has, I mean, I've done other interviews with him that people can look up, but you can, you know, he came to the city and he was like sweeping the floors on Saul Lewitt's studio and, you know, that, that he kind so of, cool. yeah, he had this, <laughs> you know, wealth of experience. But, you know, one of the things that, like, you know, for us, what was really great is that we loved the work. We loved how intuitive it was, how thought out it was. It's how playful, too. Playful, yeah. how strange it is, you know? It's totally weird. It's totally weird. And he's also someone that is so well-read. You know, his father was a linguistics uh, professor, and he's so interested in talking about ideas. And for us, we thought, wow, this is amazing. And so that really began a kind of what has been a long conversation with John about art. I just saw him, you know, on Saturday. We just were hanging out talking about art and we do that all the time because it's, it's, it's just a really fulfilling for me and for him I think to, to have these kind of ongoing discussions that are that get quite in-depth. One of the things that I found I, I referenced that bomb article and the reason I keep going back to it is because it's so accessible. Yeah. It's so smart and pointed in sort of what it talks about but it's also easy for you to understand a studio practice and why two people are thinking about things in a certain way. It's just a very honest conversation. Mm-hmm. So it strikes me as, knowing B the way that I do, it strikes me as John must be the same person. Definitely. But it's definitely coming from a place where he is very accessible in terms of talking about art. But then also, he's so well-read. And I think that for me, I mean, this is something that's very important for me as well, is that I want to have that kind of intellectual rigor, but really couple it with something that's, yeah. you know, where you can have a conversation that's outside of this art speak that doesn't yeah. make any sense, as from that quote that you read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's 
ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. Exactly. So I think that, you know, that's something that's important to both of us. But you talk to John and, you know, he'll just start, you know, quoting, you know, what Judd said on, you know, this yeah. person, you know, way back when. And he just he just knows it, you know. And it's the same thing when I met with David Hockney when I was in L.A. two weeks ago, you know. I was supposed to go over there for an hour. I spent five and a half hours. Is that right? talking with him yeah. and it was just so much fun. I mean, one second we're like looking at the history of optics and we're like going through all these little boxes yeah, that he has. He's a genius. The next second he's quoting poetry and I, and, you know, he loves poetry. I love poetry. And we just, you know, we're just like two nimble minds kind of going back and forth. And, you know, John, he's, I don't think it's quite this bad, but one of the things he talks about is that, you know, this was what the art community used to be like. Yeah. It wasn't so much about careers. Yeah. Uh, now people talk about their careers much more. It really was about conversations about what is the nature of art, what is the nature of literature, what's the nature of poetry. What are, you know, what are you thinking about? What are you looking at? And um, I don't think it's completely lost. Obviously, we're having a great conversation, but it's something that I've really found in my conversations with artists of a certain generation, whether it's you know Barbara Caston or. John Newman or... That conversation is accessible where it might not be as accessible in a more contemporary generation of artists. No, not that it's accessible. I think that the conversation is is really rich in terms of a tapestry of different references uh-huh. and really like it's obvious that this is a someone that's been having conversations around ideas for a long time and continues to add to those. I mean for, you know, for Hockney he just read a new book on optics you know, and the professor from Barcelona had just come over and he was just thinking about another approach to perception, even though he'd written his book, you know. There was just way in which where you're just like, I don't know, you're constantly redeveloping or rethinking the wheel. So do you think even the prob- at the age of 80, you know, like, which is amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. But I think one of the reasons we run into the issue of, of talking about today, mm-hmm. the market, is because artists are trying to survive. True. And the model for the gallery now is built in such a way that the artists have to produce a certain amount of product, let's say, so that they can have a studio practice to do the things that they want to do. Yes. Right? So. Yes. And, you know, David Jossett's written about how art has become a kind of form of currency. Completely. kind of networked world. So yeah. how, as an artist, should, should we be thinking about approaching a studio practice when we don't necessarily have a gallery system in place that puts us in a position to to not be thinking that way or in terms of, well, of monetary access i just think i mean it's it's uh that's an impossible question because it's a question of real estate and i think that's the biggest issue for artists these days is that someone like john could have that studio that's you know a few thousand square yeah. feet and it was very inexpensive the rent, you know, he didn't have to worry about how much money he really had to make in order to maintain Absolutely, the studio practice. Yeah. So he could just keep making work and, and kind of ride out high points and low points and whatever. Um, the same thing, you know, and so this is the big issue for so many artists I know is how did they even have a studio in New York City? And also have even an LA apartment, even. you know? LA yeah. is the same thing. It's difficult. Yeah, so it becomes, you're right, it becomes a, a real financial issue. The other thing that's happening is that, and I talked to a lot of dealers about this, top of the market's doing very well right now. So I know a lot of people who are selling at the top of the market, you know, you're seeing pieces selling for two fifty, four hundred fifty thousand dollars and they're selling very quickly. The emerging market, the middle of the market is not there's not much movement. 
And so there's... It's less than not much movement. It's down. It's down. It's definitely down. Yeah. Um, from where it has been substantially. So artists who were able to even supplement what they were making, say that they had like a teaching job or something like that, or even if they were writers, are finding that it's next to impossible to really depend on that additional income to keep their studio practice going. So, you know, it's it's just a difficult time. And, and you know, this is something that Lewis was famous for saying is that he used to say that he used to hang out with the abstract expressionist artists because they were talking about art. And when he hung out with black artists, they were talking about uh, finances, you know, how are we going to yeah. keep going? And I think now everyone um, is kind of dealing with this financial squeeze um, in terms of, you know, people who are kind of up and coming or even people who are in mid-career who are trying to, you know, maintain a, a practice. Well, I think I, I see this as a, as a mid-career artist and at a, at a mid-level gallery mm-hmm. and not mid-level in quality, but mid-level in, in financially, right? Yeah. The issue not only becomes, uh, for me, like if you if your gallery can participate in fairs and they spend exactly. a certain amount of money and break even by making $100,000 at that fair. Yes. But also becomes sort of the institutional support system that is built behind this, this narrative of what gets displayed as well too. Public Art Fund is one of these places that used to have an emerging artist grant where they would pay for the artist to produce works. Now the works have to be funded by the gallery space. Exactly. It's only a big galleries that so, do that. Yeah. So the only people that can do that, those mid-level galleries, can't even afford to produce the, the funds to, to, to show these works. So a great institution like Public Art Fund all of a sudden is now only showing artworks from the top. The blue chip artists, yeah. Which is a complete disparity of what you're going to, and then it, it funds this sort of cycle in what is seen in the public and what is shown. Exactly. So... I don't know what the turnaround point is in in fixing that, and we've had these conversations, not you and I, but there's this conversation also about subsidizing large galleries, subsidizing little galleries or smaller galleries into art fairs, and that isn't an answer as well either. It's, it's sort of the cyclical nature of the current contemporary art market that how do you break out of it? And I don't, I, this isn't as much of a question, or I, I just don't know what the answer to it is. It's just, it's a problem. It's a huge problem, and it's something that I think is depressing for all parties involved, for artists who are even making a lot of money. You know, what's really interesting is last fall, so basically, you know, alongside a lot of the writing I've been doing and curating, um, I've also been doing some political action work, and last fall I partnered with a friend of mine, Marilyn Minter, and we curated an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum where we had artists um, make objects for sale, and that money was then donated to the ACLU and Planned Parenthood. And working with, you know, over 70 artists, many of them, you know, it was a huge range. So it was maybe it was Glenn Ligon, Kelty Ferris, my friend Harriet Salmon, made a variety of things. And then we, you know, we brought all these different artists together. And it was amazing to me how many artists from the very top to the very, you know, emerging said, this is amazing. I feel like we are in, we are in a real community, and yeah. I've been wanting to meet that person. I've been want, oh, I've been wanting to talk to young artists. I just don't know how to Isn't access funny? them. That is so yeah. crazy. Yeah, so guys, I just love that. Um, I think that I mean that's essentially um, part of what's missing is a way for to connect these conversations. different groups and have conversations yeah. and and th- things of that nature because you know it's you know it's exciting to have for some of the say older artists to have kind of fresh. Yeah blood ideas or, or even just, you know, conversations and then vice versa. It's, it's exciting for the um, emerging artists to, to talk to people that have done it before 
and or people whose work that they've been uh, looking at for a long time and admiring for a long time. I when we walked up here, I talked to you. I spoke to you briefly. I said why I started this podcast. One of the reasons was to gain access. Yeah. Because it's a weird thing to write somebody out of the cold and want to have a conversation, but all I want to do is have these conversations. And it gives you an opportunity to do so. But I think you're right. This thing is missing in the community where you have access to individuals to just talk about art. Yeah. You see, I, I see that missing. And what you were speaking about earlier, too, about that lacking and sort of people wanting to have that five-hour conversation in the studio. Yeah. It's important. Yeah, it's really important. You know, going back to John, you know, he had an opening at Safe Gallery. And... Um, he brought together all these different worlds, and then I guess you know, some of the old artists said, "How do you know all these young people?" And then the funny part <laughs> is that he knew the young people through me. You know what I mean? And you know, I introduced him to Delusha and to Ethan, and and so then he, you know, he has his own friendships now, and he's meeting people all the time. But you know, I think it's it's really interesting how like a meeting of like that for us was kind of you know really pivotal, like in the sense that when you know the next. When I went, when Artform asked me to interview Lori Simmons, you know, John wrote her and said, you know, Andriana's going to come over. And she said, well, I usually only do interviews on the phone, but because you're a friend of John's, you know, come over and she made me cookies. And then we just ended up, based on that conversation, becoming friends. I won't do interviews on the phone anymore. I refuse. I mean, Martin I Purrier, I've always wanted to interview him. His gallery said, sure, he wants, he'll agree to the interview. And I said, okay, when do I get to go upstate? And then you know he doesn't want he didn't want me in the studio, which is totally his. That's decision. his thing. That's totally, totally fine. fine. But I was like, I'm not going to do this over the phone because you know it just. There, there is something great. lost in the conversation or yeah. the communication, just slight of body language. You you can miss out on an entire aspect of what's important in that conversation without being there and being present. Yeah, and it also places a sign, kind of arbitrary time limit on the conversation. Oh, I didn't think about that. You're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, so you're kind of like, okay, well, I gave you half an hour of my time. Um, as opposed to maybe kind of being involved. And it, it, it could be half an hour, but it could also be five hours, as we were right. saying. It could be something that's much more fluid yeah. and you know engaged rather than being something that it's like a, a duty or a task. Now that I'm sitting in your, your, uh, your apartment, you're not kicking me out anytime soon. So. <laughs> no, I just have a couple more. I have a couple more things yeah, I want to hear real quick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, we can talk forever, and then you yeah, can yeah, just yeah. decide what's most interesting. All of it. I love it. This is great. Um, <laughs> I don't want to, one of the things I do want to hit for sure is uh, Luchita. Oh, yes, yes. Um, because she is having a, a moment where her work is being seen and it hasn't been seen for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So please explain your interest in her work and her as an artist and a person. She's an amazing individual. So this, this is really funny. I mean, it doesn't exactly come back to John, but I, I was working on Norman Lewis for the subject of my dissertation. And John said to me, well, do you know Miani Johnson? And I said, no, who's Miani Johnson? And he said, well, Miani Johnson's mom, Marion Willard, showed Norman Lewis. And you should go meet Miani. And so I went to Miani's house, and I was there looking through her archives on Norman Lewis. And she says to me, you know, there was a very nice young man here yesterday, and he is working on Lee Mulliken, starting a Lee Mulliken Foundation. And his name's Ryan Good, and I told him about you and your research, because Miani and I have been getting coffee, and she's brilliant. Basically, she, you know, and she's, I mean, I, can, I should talk about her at some point, but so she said, why don't you talk to Ryan? So I t talked to this guy, Ryan, and he says, okay, well, I know that you're mainly based up at Stanford, but we would love for you to do a conversation about this Lee Mulliken show that we're putting together. Lee's work has never been shown. They don't have a gallery yet. 
would you, do you think of someone you want to have a conversation with? So I said, well, maybe Shannon Ebner would be good. And so I came down to LA and I had this conversation about Lee's work with Shannon. And then they said, well, let's walk through the storage facility, which hadn't been moved yet or organized. And it was this crazy, huge storage facility of Lee's work. And Lee had also showed it with the Willard Gallery alongside Norman Lewis. And there were all these letters between them. As I was out there, I met Luchita Hurtado. And Luchita and I were having, were having a talk. Who was the wife of? Who was the wife of Lee Mulliken, the mother of Matt Mulliken. Yeah. She had been married to Wolfgang Pollen, who was an important artist in the 40s. And as we started talking, we started having a lot of fun because, um, you know, I'm an art historian, so I like to dork out. And she was telling me about, you know, hanging out with she Breton, Andre Breton. Yeah. She was friends with Noguchi. Marcel Duchamp gave her a foot rub at a party. <laughs> that was the scandal of New York for a long time. And so, you know, she's in her 90s, but she is such a firecracker. And as I started talking to her, Brian was saying, well, you know, I'm starting to find all these drawings that are Luchita's. And I didn't realize, we always knew that she had an art career. But she didn't talk about but it. But she didn't talk about it. She always was kind of off to the side. There's some letters from Wolfgang Pond saying he wants to show the work, show her work. But some of these things actualized, some didn't, you know, over the years. Uh, she had some shows in L.A. She's really good friends with Agnes Martin. But she didn't really show the work that often. And as he was going through all this material, they had work all the way back to the 40s. And so what, what, what happened next is that there was a show that was organized, and I decided that, you know, because Luchita was at this age that, you know, she had broke, she had fell down and I was really worried about her health, I decided to do this interview for Art Forum, and I wrote my editor, and they said, well, we don't know who she is, but we trust you, and you can just do whatever you want, you know? And so I went ahead and did this interview with her, trying to mark the fact that, you know, here she was having an exhibition and she had been working for so long. And it was, you know, it's trying to get, kind of get a lot in there, yeah. but, but definitely I wanted her to kind of have something out there. Based on some of that press, Matthew Marks went and saw that show and decided to put, you know, now she's in the painting now and forever show here in New York. And also what happened is Hans Ulrich Oberst did an interview and my friend Chris Wiley did a conversation with her. And now, you know, she's having this moment where she's in the Made in LA show. Yeah. She's one of the banners outside, the huge banners outside. Yeah. The work is The work is awesome. fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. It's really great paintings and they're of the body. They're of textiles from her travels. You know, she traveled all over the world. They lived in India. She made all of her own clothes, right? She made her own clothes, which yeah. I've gone through her closet. We've exchanged rings, actually one of the rings I'm wearing. <laughs> It's designed by this uh, fashion designer in New York, Sama Sama. And so, yeah, so uh, she has one as well. It looks like a little Gucci. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she loves, um, she loves jewelry, she loves clothing, so do I. So we, we also bond about that. But we have been talking for a long time, and I'm really excited. I'm doing a conversation with her next month at The Hammer. And, you know, I just, for me, it's just really thrilling because women have for so long stood in the shadows of their husbands and in fact their children it's amazing that she's having this moment and yeah. you know she's 97 years old and she's gonna see some success and um acceptance from an art community and is several she, art communities is she still making today or not she's still making she and really? one of the things that happened too is like after my interview you know ryan calls me and checks in and tells me what's going on with her you know basically it was like she is he started bringing her like paints and watercolors and she started getting up again and being like, I'm an artist. So it's transformative in like how she lives now. And... Yeah, exactly. Because she had just been keeping a diary, a dream diary, 
but maybe not working as actively, you know, in her 90s because she hadn't really had any support. And I really want to stress this point because Ryan Good, I mean, you know, there have been people like me and Chris, and but he's the one that really, well, dug out Lee's work, uh, Lee Mulliken, who's now showing at the James Cohen Gallery, right. and, and that's going quite well, but also found a lot of Luchita's work and, and saw value in it and put it aside and cared for it and, and really has something that someone she really depends on. And I think that he doesn't get a lot of credit, but he, he should because he was really at the forefront of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, you're working on a big exhibition now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that thing. That thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it is still uh, in the formative stages of what you're going to include mm-hmm. in it, but I thought maybe you could talk a bit about the subject matter of what it is and where it's potentially going to be and, or yeah, not. So maybe, or wh- well, yeah, you tell me what you can tell me about Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I can tell you, and maybe I'll tell you another story. And I don't know how many of these stories you, you want to include. I love the stories. But, you um, can keep them coming, please. Oh, so I was out at Stanford and I flew in and I got a call as I was on the tarmac, as I landed, and it was John Newman. And he said, well, I know you're just back in New York. I don't know if you want to meet me at the Whitney opening for Frank Stella. You know, he's like, I don't know if you have enough time to drop your bags. And so I was like, I'm going to drop my bag and then I come with you to the opening. So I get off the plane, came here, dropped my bag, went to the city, met him, and we go to see the Stella show. While we're in there, we're kind of mulling around, and I see Roberta Smith, and she and I are talking, and, you know, she always kind of is joking with me that I'm this young critic, and, and she says, well, are you going to write about the show? And I said, I don't know if I'm going to write about the show. I mean, what can I say about Frank Stella? And she said, well, if you're going to write about the show, what do you write about? And I say, well, I'd write about the stripe paintings. Um, I love them. I love that early work. And she said, well, isn't that a little bit boring, you know? And she kind of said it in a snarky way, and I said, well, what about that crazy painting? And so I pointed to this giant painting that, you know, it's like a classic Stella with all of these kind of swirling parts and colors. Yeah. And, and as I went over to look at the, 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 la- the wall label for that, I noticed that it had been made using some digital mapping tools. And I thought, wow, that's weird, you know? And when I started thinking about that, I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense because the space in this painting is um, not like a regular space. It feels like a virtual space yeah. by nature of how certain things sit back or sit forward or even kind of disbursement of um, color and line across the surface. And so I started thinking about that piece and I, you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't really writing um, many reviews because I've been traveling so much and living out in California. But I wrote my editor at Artform and I said, I want to write this review about the Stella show and I'm going to write about it it being kind of bad space based on this idea written about by Robert Slifkin, a space that's incongruent or unusual, non-illusionistic. Okay. And so I wrote this review and at first they said, well, I, this is a crazy review. Who wants to write about late Stella, you know, like, yeah. like 1980s yeah. to the present and not include anything about the stripe paintings. Yeah. And I say, I say it's bad several times in the review. Yeah. And so they published that review and I, people started calling me from all over the place. They were like, this is an amazing review. It's so crazy. And one of the things that happened is that I got a call from Ricky Mann at Boski who says, Frank Stella read your review. And he <laughs> says, it's the best thing that's been written about his work in 30 years. Oh my gosh. And we want to put you on a plane and bring you back to New York and you're going to meet Frank. And I said, no. What? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I just got back to California. I'm in the library. I don't know who you are. And he said, well, if you don't want to come back, then I'll just get some other art writer. I said, well, fine, go ahead. You go ahead and do that. And I was like, don't talk to me like a dealer. And I yeah. hung up on him. 
Did you really? I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fast forward a year later, I'm back in New York, and he writes me a very polite email and saying, well, can we sit down? You know, Fiden wants to do a book, and Frank really wants you to do it. I met with him, and it was a kind of more civil conversation. He wasn't trying to hard sell on me, you know? I was like, I'm a scholar. And I said, well, maybe I'll go up and meet with him. And I went up and started talking with uh, Frank for this this Fiden interview, and he's no-nonsense. But he is brilliant. And I've had started, dinner with him once. Yeah. Yeah. He's gruff. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I talk he to like, his wife most of the time. I Harriet's <laughs> sweetheart, yeah. Harriet is lovely. Yeah, she is really lovely. Yeah, he is so gruff. But, um, <laughs> but you know, sometimes he's like, Adriana, you're such a bully. Because I'll be like, just stop doing what you're doing. And just like, talk to me about this idea. And then once you start talking about ideas, he's he just a, opens up. He's on up. the go. Yeah, he's yeah. on the go. So one of the things we started talking about was him kind of trying to reimagine space, this idea of bad space, we actually had written about in the Norton lectures he did at Harvard uh, in the 80s. And so like, it's really funny because I had this idea about bad, I hadn't read the lectures, he had this idea about bad, when he's talking about graffiti, hit. and they hit, they came together. Yeah. And so when I started doing that interview, um, I mean, they'd asked me to write an essay, and I was like, I don't know if I want to write an essay right now. I didn't think I had the time. I'd much rather spend two and a half years talking to him about art. And so we did that. And then, you know, Even Magazine came to me and asked if I'd write an article. And I thought, I think this article has to be about this idea about space. And reimagining space, there's something I call a kind of proto-digital lens. And so I was looking at his work, I was looking at Jack Witten's work, I was looking at Lucas Blaylock's work, and trying to think about what different ways that we can talk about space in terms of like an aesthetics of the digital, whether it's in terms of bracketing or fragmentation or all of these different ideas. And so I wrote this article, um, which some people told me, you know, people are teaching it at various universities, which is really exciting. And I kind of forgot about it, but Boski came to me and said, would you be interested in doing an exhibition um, around some of the themes in this article. And because it's broken up into kind of three separate sections, how would you feel about doing it in three different cities? And I thought, well, that sounds really exciting. So immediately I went and spoke to Laura Owens, um, who's going to be involved because she'd done that interview with yeah. Frank Stella for his show. And there are a couple of different people that just make complete sense in terms of what um, the exhibition will look like, like Alex Dodge, uh, like Lucas and you know, a few others. So it's gonna be Trudy Benson, for instance. Um, so it's gonna be much bigger than that, obviously, because it's gonna be in three different cities, but you know, some of the ideas are, it's kind of looking at- Simultaneously kind of, or not? Simultaneously, yeah. Looking at the ways in which we approach technology in this early period and seeing how some of those have carried through to the present. And not just looking at the, them through the lens of abstraction, but maybe even in terms of bodies um, and things that are, are figured as well. I want to say thank you very much. For me, mm-hmm. the initial approach, and I think I mentioned this early on, is the idea that you are a participant in the community, but really, after having this conversation, it clarifies sort of what I was thinking about before, and I really didn't know why I wanted to interview, other than I saw you, your sort of hands and everything doing different stuff, mm-hmm. is that you want to have the conversations and extend sort of the, the canon of thought and what's happening between artists and curators and writers and that I think and the willingness to take the time mm-hmm. like three years later writing the piece or a year later coming back to something you're revisiting and taking the time with it mm-hmm. is really sort of a remarkable aspect of what you're doing in your career so 
thank you for taking the time to sit with me and have a conversation. Well, thank you. <laughs> and until next time. Yes. <laughs>